Well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and however you access, go to Mark chapter 1. And if you're not familiar with looking up scripture, uh, most of the passages we'll look at today will be on the screen behind me. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm a little excited about uh, this new series that we're about to embark on called Snapshots. Because the truth is, it's actually, I think, more of a, not just a series, it's actually more of a journey. Because over the next few months, we are going to be journeying through the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And as we walk through this book, it's my prayer that we will more clearly understand who Jesus is, what his purpose was, and how his life and works are still impacting our life today. I don't know if any of you have any great hobbies that you love. Growing up, or as we first got married, one of Katie's big hobbies that she loved was scrapbooking. She loved to scrapbook. She would take all of these pictures and uh, she would take them and buy all. She'd go to like these little scrapbook weekends. Like her and all her friends would go and do things and they'd come back with these photo albums just full of pictures and captions that would kind of tell a story of a year in our life or a year in our kid's life and or an event that we went on. And she loved to scrapbook. And now instead of scrapbooking, now and we do more like digital uh, photo albums where we're storing things online. We're taking pictures all the time. We, we love to document our histories. I found this graphic this week. It was estimated last year we took 1.2 trillion pictures. 1.2 trillion pictures. If you look just a few years ago, like we've doubled. How many? And it's all because of what? Of this thing right here, right? I mean, we just go and we snap whatever we want to. I realized the other day, I was like looking back, trying to find picture. I was like, 90% of the pictures I take, I don't know that I've ever gone back and looked at like, I just kind of know they're there, and uh, maybe one day I will go back and look at them. But we love to document our history uh, of us, us personally. Wherever key moments are going on, it seems like there's a camera there. I remember when uh, my nephew was born, my, my brother and sister-in-law had their first child. We are there at the house afterwards meeting him, and they pull out a VHS tape. This is how long ago it was. And they were like, we recorded the birth. Who wants to watch? And I'm like, nope, I am not up uh, for that. And they're like, no, nothing bad. I'm like, still, I am not up for that. That's not something I want to see. But we love to record our histories. And we look back and these snapshots or these quick videos that we take, and it's, it's like it brings back the whole story. I remember growing up, we used to have to actually send film off to be developed. And uh, this was even before the days of like the one hour photos Like you would send it off and a week would come by. And it was like almost waiting for Christmas because you didn't know what kind of pictures you got. You don't know how good they turned out. You forget half of what you took. And it was like an event when you would go pick those pictures up. You would invite friends over. You would invite family over like we got the pictures like come. We're having a party to look at pictures. And you would go and like out of a roll of 36 pictures, there's like six good ones. You know, and but you would pass them around and people and it was like you were reliving this event. You are doing your best to bring people into the moment that you experience that moment that you just remember, you know, it'd been weeks ago now until you got these pictures developed. And it was wanted them to fully experience it with you. And this is what I want us to do over the next few weeks as we journey through the book of Mark to stop and look at snapshots of Jesus's life and try to put ourselves in the moment to try to live it and experience. Now, why the book of Mark? 
If you're familiar at all with the Bible, there are four primary books in the Bible that record the life of Jesus. They're called the, the Gospels, and, and if you know them, they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. But each of these books was written by a different person to a different audience with a different perspective. Matthew, for instance, was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew was trying to communicate the gospel in such a way that people of Jewish descent could understand who Jesus was in light of Jewish tradition and teachings. He was hoping that they would say Jesus was the awaited for Messiah. Luke, on the other hand, he primarily wrote to a Gentile audience, an audience not of Jewish background, those not familiar with Judaism. Luke's goal was to help those from multiple faith backgrounds understand that Jesus was this Jewish man who came to bring hope to all people. John, the last gospel that was written, was actually written several decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it was primarily written to solidify the divinity of Jesus and him as the source of our salvation, which leaves us with Mark. And Mark is a very unique gospel because Mark is actually the earliest gospel written. Sometimes we think the books in the Bible go chronologically and the Gospels are, are not like that. Matthew was not written first. Matthew and Luke were written about the same time. But, but Mark was the very first Gospel written. It was probably written about 35 years after Jesus' resurrection. Not too long. And it's a very raw and people have, have referred to it as kind of a crude and unpolished Gospel. When you look at it in its original language and original text, it's not a story. It's actually just a bunch of, a lot of just kind of gatherings of stories and writings that are put in some kind of order to help us understand. Very unpolished manner. It's, it, it isn't like the other three gospels that are more polished and edited. It's a raw account of Jesus' life and deeds. A collection of stories written by Mark. And most people would say that these were actually written by Mark, who was the disciple of Peter. And so Mark was probably with Peter, and Peter was recounting his stories with Jesus. One of the most dear friends of Jesus was recounting his stories, and Mark was capturing them and writing them down. The other thing that is unique about Mark is it just ends. Most early transcripts ends at verse 8 in your Bible of the last chapter, Mark 16. And it's basically the women find Jesus at the tomb, that the tomb is empty, and it says they were afraid. And that's how it ends. It doesn't talk anything about what happened after that. It's just kind of this, it's done. It's just a very rough story trying to capture what is going on. And this is exactly why I wanted us to study this book. It's kind of the unedited, unpolished portrait of Jesus from very firsthand accounts of his closest disciples. I don't know if you've ever seen the news when they show like, they give you the warning like this is unedited footage. Right. This is kind of what Mark is. It's unedited footage. It is just as Peter and Mark saw it and remembered it and said, here's what happened. And this book is so important. It actually became the outline for both Matthew and Luke. If you look at Matthew and Luke there, they can line up right next to Mark. They've just added more context and content to it. So before we jump into the actual story and what we're going to look at today, there's a couple terms that I want to make sure we understand as we do this. And the first term is the term gospel. All right, so we've heard that, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, Luke, John. What does that word mean? It simply means good news or a good story. It is a good story about something or someone. There were many Gospels written by many different people, and actually there are still Gospels being written today. We just kind of call them biographies. 
It's actually good stories about good people that, are, that we know and that we're living life with. And this is simply this gospel of Jesus, according to Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, is simply the story of Jesus and his good deeds of his life reported by those that knew him the best. It's a biography of Jesus, a true telling of stories of direct testimony. The second thing I want you to understand as we look at these Gospels is a word that I want us to talk about is, what, what does it mean by translation? The Bible that we hold in our hands is an English Bible. And as much of us who speak English think that English has been around since the Garden of Eden, it has not. It was not the preferred language. English wasn't even around until about 500 years after Jesus. And what we read has actually probably gone through at least two translations. There are three languages that were primarily found in the New Testament, which was Greek, Armenian, and our Aramaic, I'm sorry, and, uh, and Hebrew. And so we can be reading sometimes two or three different changes of a translation. And just like us, sometimes even just telling somebody something in English, the meaning gets lost. Going through translation, sometimes the meanings get lost. And so what I'm going to try to do in this series is really go back and help us understand the original intent in the original context that we would see in this, try to bridge the gap to move from their original story to how we can be impacted today. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this study? One, I think it's going to help us to get to know Jesus better, like I mentioned earlier. But the second is this. I would love for us as a congregation to begin the process of writing our own gospel translation of how Jesus has impacted our life, of how he's impacting you and me today. My goal as we walk through this journey of Mark is that we would write our own story of the encounters with Jesus in our own words, our own drawings, and our own depictions, our own gospel translation. It isn't that we're retelling the story of Jesus' life on earth, but we are telling the gospel and the good news of Jesus and how he's impacting our lives today. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, that we should always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within us, that we should be able to retell and recount the story of Jesus in our life and how he's impacting us. So that's what I want us to do. The gospel of Jesus according to the faith family of New City Church. And many of you are wondering, like, why do we have these little colored stickies on here? Somebody asked me, is this, are we doing like an Oprah giveaway this morning? Is somebody getting a car? It's, we want to go ahead and give you these. They'll be available each week. And we're going to end with a question each week. And my challenge is that you would, at the end of the sermon, maybe write an answer to that question that will tell of your encounter with Jesus. And at the end of the service, I'll tell you what we're going to do with those. And so uh, don't just doodle on those or or make random notes yet. Uh, Grab one or two, and we'll use those as we go through this series. So let's jump into it this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15. And I want to read the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to jump back and look at some of the key things, the snapshots that Mark is telling us here. So Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of God, as, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And as he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And verse 9 says this, In those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came and was baptized by John and the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. The Spirit then immediately drove him, meaning Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after Jesus, uh, John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now in these first 15 verses, Mark does something pretty amazing. He introduces, introduces us to the who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, and why he is interested and to us today, why this is even an interesting story. Think about it. If you know anything about the other Gospels, most of them start with the genealogy of Jesus. They'll say, this person begot that person, that person. They'll talk about this, the nativity story of Mary and Joseph and how Jesus was born. Mark doesn't start with any of that. He starts with what he thinks is the most important moment, and he kind, kind of gives a different genealogy and heritage of Jesus that we will see here. And from the very beginning, what he was saying is this. There is something unique about Jesus. There's something unique about him. There's this unique man that has lived, that I experienced life with, that is different. And I want us to see three snapshots that he lays out here. The first snapshot we see in verse 7 when we see John baptizing. John is out baptizing people. And what, what Mark is doing here is he's giving us what I call a scriptural heritage of Jesus. Because he's saying, look, in Isaiah, it taught about the Messiah coming. But even more so than that, it talked about this weird man who would show up before Jesus. This guy who would live out in the wilderness, be dressed and talk a different way and be calling people to a different kind of repentance. And so what Mark is doing here is saying, not only am I going to show you that Jesus is who he is because of what he's done, but I'm going to show you Jesus is who he is because he's fulfilling his scriptural heritage. John the forerunner of Jesus, was there. Now, this is John the Baptist. We've heard this story before, if you've been around the Bible. It's, he's called John the Baptizer, and many people in that day were named John, right? They were, had to be classified by kind of what they did. He was known as John the Baptizer. Uh, there's John the Evangelist in the New Testament, and John the, the Revelator in, in Revelation. They were written by what they did. Now, imagine if you were John and you weren't good for much, right? Like John the lazy or, or John the dumb, John the whatever. This guy was John the Baptist, though. He was known as the guy who baptized people out in the Jordan River. But according to actually what his message was, he would be better represented as somebody saying, I am John the preparer, John the forerunner of the Messiah, John the proclaimer of the Messiah, because his message was the Messiah is coming. And in verse 7 and 8, John uses a phrase here that is kind of unique. And it's one of those phrases when it gets translated to English, we maybe don't kind of quench what it says. But he says in verse 7, he says, And as he preached, he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I don't know about you. I don't know when the last time you like reached down and took off somebody's shoes other than your kids. That's not something we normally do in our culture. And honestly, it wasn't something normally did in their culture either. And a lot of times this is taught as like a sign of reverence and humility and service. It's like I'm not even I'm not even worthy to serve the man who's coming. But there's a deeper meaning in this when we go back and and look at the Hebrew. And it's kind of a crazy story, uh, a law found in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, There was a law that said this. uh, If your brother, if you were you and uh, my wife and my brother and his wife, if my brother died, it was my obligation to take his wife as my wife. Now, it wasn't like creating a harem, but it was basically more of like just creating a safe place, uh, a place for for her and stability and and care and things like that. But if the if the if the brother refused to take his brother's wife after the brother died, then he would have to go in front of the people of the the community and proclaim that. And here's what the, the kind of spurned wife got to do. She would get to reach down, unbuckle his shoe take it off, throw it, and spit in his face. I'm not, like, I'm not making this up. This is in Deuteronomy 25. It's kind of crazy because what she is like, she's basically saying, you have disrespected me. I am taking off your shoe. You have disrespected me. You have, you have pushed back. You, you've done something that has caused me harm. And this is what John is saying here. He's not just saying, hey, I'm just going to untie. I can't even like take his shoes off so he can be comfortable. He's saying, look, There's going to be somebody that comes after me that's not going to build on what I've done, that's not going to make what I've done better, but he is going to do something totally new. John was not trying to create a following. He was trying to prepare the way for Jesus. And he's saying, look, when Jesus shows up, when Messiah shows up, I have no right to be offended. I have no right to reach down and take off his shoe and get mad at him because he stole my followers. He's saying, I am not going to be disrespected by this man. Because during this day, people were trying to label John as the Messiah. Anybody who created a following, they were trying to say, are you a Messiah? You Messiah. And John was one of the very first ones. He says, look, I am not Messiah, but he's coming. And he will take, all of you will follow him. And I will not be disrespected by it at all. He's laying an incredible groundwork for Jesus. And what Mark is telling us here in this moment is this. Jesus is distinct. He is singular. There's nothing else like him. Our goal is not to try to compete with Jesus or build some kind of kingdom for him. Just like John, there's nothing we can do for Jesus. The only thing we can do is help people see Jesus, to point people toward Jesus. Jesus is distinct. This is his scriptural heritage, that he is it. There's only one Messiah, it's not Messiah and his sidekick, John the Baptist, or Messiah and his sidekick, the disciples, or it's not Jesus and us. It is Jesus, the singular source of all salvation. And then we see a a second snapshot here, which is actually when Jesus was baptized. Look at verse 9, and it says, In those days then Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. And something amazing happens here in verse 10. And 11. If you mark your Bibles or mark verses, you should mark these two verses. And it says, when he came up out of the water, immediately they saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, who I am well pleased. Now let me give you just set the stage here. John's out baptizing every day in the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem, a good 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. 
People are making the trek to go and hear what he's saying and be baptized. And every day he's not just baptizing people, but he's also saying, you know what? The Messiah is coming. And then one day Jesus shows up. If you don't know this, Jesus was John's cousin. And so it's probably not the first time they saw each other. But this is actually the first time that John proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. And why is this? Because when we read this, you see what happened. There is a huge moment that happens. For the past 400 years, God had not spoken to his people. There had been no ordained prophet of God. It had been a very quiet time in the life. God had not shown up like he had in the Old Testament and spoken to Moses or spoken to the people or sent a spirit for them to follow, a fire in the, at night or a cloud in the day to follow. They had seemed abandoned. And then this one moment when Jesus was baptized and was brought up, the voice of God speaks for the first time in 400 years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the Jewish people thought in that moment? That the voice of God was speaking. And what did he say? He didn't come and say, Hey, Israel, I'm back. I mean, he didn't, he didn't you know, didn't make this one-liner. He basically made a proclamation about this man, Jesus. And he said, this is my beloved son. Let me tell you what that word beloved means. It doesn't mean just a lot of love. It actually means my one and only, the only of his kind. That there is no one like him. It's not just saying, hey, this is Jesus, like all the children of Israel, just I love him a little bit more. He is saying, no, this is my one and only, my beloved, is how he would say it. He is pointing Jesus out as this son of his. And what Mark is giving us here is Jesus' spiritual heritage, the one-of-a-kind son of God. Think about it for a minute. This is one of the, I think, one of the only times in Scripture that we actually see all three parts of the Trinity interacting together. We hear the voice of God, who his voice created the entire universe, speaking down. We see the spirit that breathes life into everything flowing down from heaven, and we see the physical manifestation of God through Jesus coming out of the water in this monumental moment in Jewish and world history. The Trinity of Almighty God is present in one place. This is the divine spiritual heritage of God, and it shows that Jesus is divine and sovereign and that he carries the power of God. This is not just some mere man. This isn't just a special man with some special gifts or special wisdom. This is the full expression of God. And he is telling us that this man, Jesus, should be revered as God, that his words should be looked at as the ultimate source of wisdom. His actions should be looked at as the ultimate example for everyone to follow. He's not just a good teacher, a good person, or, or just something. He is God. He is divine and sovereign. And I think we fall into that same trap that some people do of just turning Jesus into a guy that said a lot of wise things, a guy who did some good things, a guy who lived a good life, a guy we can look back on and learn from. And he is certainly all of those, but he is so much more than those. He is divine God in the flesh. This is what Mark was laying out in this moment when the Trinity comes together. And the final snapshot we see is in verse 14, and it's uh, 
when Jesus actually returns from being tempted and what he speaks and says here. In verse 14, it says, Now after he was tempted, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what do you think was maybe happening for these 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness? Do you think people just forgot about what happened out at the Jordan River? I can imagine people began to talk, right? I mean, Jesus spoke. I mean, God spoke from heaven. The Spirit descended. Jesus came out of the water, and Jesus, God proclaimed, this is my one and only Son, my beloved Son. I'm sure word was getting around. People were beginning to say, is this God the Messiah? Where did he go? What's going on? And the word was getting around, and people were getting excited. John the Baptist had been arrested. They had kind of broken up his little party out in the desert. They were trying to dispense of what was going on and squash this early on, but people continued to talk. And then Jesus comes back from the wilderness, and he says something pretty unique. He basically says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, it's like a mic drop moment. I mean, he just comes and was like, boom, the kingdom of God is here. This idea of kingdom is a big deal in the New Testament. For us in an English and Western setting, sometimes we think kingdom, we think territory, we think reign, and we think, you know, expanding the kingdom, that we should broaden our borders. But in Jewish concept and in Jewish culture, the idea of kingdom is always related to action and demonstration. It's always related to doing. Jesus is saying, I'm about to demonstrate to you what God is like, who he really is. Something that had been missing from the Jewish culture for centuries is here again. He is saying the kingdom of God is back. We see God's kingdom not as some earthly expansion of territory, but a demonstration of God's character. When we see Jesus work, we see the kingdom work. And what Mark is doing here is completing the heritage of Christ. He gave us the the scriptural, the spiritual, and here he's putting Jesus into now his societal heritage and saying, look, this man is going to continue the work that God began all the way back in the garden, that God began when he, when he met with Adam and Eve, that God began when he covenanted with Abraham and he brought the law to Moses and delivered the Egyptian children or the, the children of Israel from Egypt. It's going to continue what we saw in the prophets and the priests and the kings. And what we see in Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just a king, but we see the full expression of all three of those, the full expression of God. And what we see here is Mark is telling us that Jesus is destined. He has a destiny, and that destiny is to bring salvation to all mankind. This moment is not about declaring a kingdom come to overthrow the current government or to launch a radical rebellion. It's instead about the salvation of the soul of every mankind. No matter what they have done, no matter what they will do, it is a covering of our sin through the salvation that is coming through this man that is God who will live a perfect life and will demonstrate his willingness to sacrifice in his death. Now, just like the people around the countryside in Galilee had probably talked about the idea that Jesus was going to come and overthrow the Roman government, reestablish the kingdom of Israel, we can fall into that same trap. We can believe that the kingdom of God, that the expanding kingdom of God is about expanding our territory, our influence, about gaining more constitutional rights and more religious liberties. Instead, 
Jesus wasn't about expanding the kingdom of Israel, but he was about demonstrating the kingdom and character of God. The kingdom that Jesus brings isn't about more government influence or support. Instead, it is about a willingness to demonstrate love, compassion, forgiveness, grace, and hope in spite of whatever societal opposition we may face. It's not making our path easier. It is walking the path of truth no matter what path we are called to walk. The, the truth is this. We have so many Christians, I think, in our culture today fighting for religious liberties when we aren't even using the liberties that we have already been given to their fullest. And God does not call us to fight for liberty. He calls us to live out of the liberty that he has already provided for us. So my question for us today is this. As we looked at this heritage of God, of Christ, that God revealed through Mark, of the societal and scriptural and spiritual heritage, the idea that he was divine, that he's destined, that he is just distinct and different, my question for you is this. What is unique about Jesus to you? Whatever your encounter with Jesus has been so far in your life, what is it that's unique about Jesus to you?